chapter 20, I think it'll be on the screen as well. We're going to be reading the first um, 17 or 18 verses. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. This is only the second time in the Gospel of John that we find Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, the last time we saw her, if you go back and read in chapters uh, 19, I believe, we will see that Jesus hangs on the cross, and there we meet for the first time Mary Magdalene in John's Gospel. This was one of the women that followed Jesus to Jerusalem to take care of his needs. This was a woman who had had multiple demons cast out of her by Jesus. This was a woman who, who had encountered Jesus in a way that, that turned her life upside down. And this Sunday morning, this woman whose life was turned upside down had had it turned upside down again with his death. And we see her here for the second time in John, coming to the tomb and finding that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body. They've taken it out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple started running out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and he looked in and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in, and she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and, and saw someone standing there. She, she, it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and I will get him. Miriam, well, the Greek version Mary, but the text has actually got Miriam, her, her real name, Miriam. She turned to him and she cried out, Rabboni, which means Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said. I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave them this message. On Friday, being the start of Passover, being the start also of the Sabbath, well, not the start of Passover, but the start of the Sabbath, there were restrictions on what you could and couldn't do. One of those restrictions meant that those who were 
partaking of the Passover were not allowed to have contact with the dead body. And so Jesus was left on a, a, a preparation bench in the tomb, waiting for the final steps of his burial to take place, the, eventually to be placed in a niche cut into the tomb and left there to decompose. Passover over, early Sunday morning while it was still dark, that sort of sun threatening to come over the horizon kind of time I would imagine, there are some women who come to the tomb. They want to finish tending to the body properly. The other Gospels tell us that there are a bunch of women. We get a hint of it here in John because Mary says, we found the tomb empty. But John's focus is on Mary. Mark says they arrive at dawn. John says it's still dark. These guys could not wait to get there. They were pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable to go and deal with Jesus' body because they loved him that much. They weren't expecting to find a risen Jesus. Discovering the stone rolled away, Mary's perfectly justifiable thought and assumption is that the tomb has been violated. Not only was her master's life stolen from her, so too she thinks his body has been taken. Stealing bodies was, was obviously not something you do every day, but, but it was also not an uncommon crime. So much so that a few years later, the emperor Claudius, I think, had to make it a capital offense to steal bodies. There was an inscription uh, from Emperor Claudius found at Nazareth. They think they know what's happened. It's obvious. If the tomb has been opened, the body has been ransacked and taken away. Mark tells us that they actually step inside the tomb and encounter an angel. And Mark finishes on a very strange note where the women run away and say nothing because they're scared. They don't give the message of the angel. John skips that bit. He just sees Mary running back to the disciples, running to Peter, running to the disciple Jesus loved, that is, that is John, the writer of this gospel. There's, there's a lot of running in the scene. Mary runs to the disciples, and the disciples run to the tomb. John outruns Peter. John was a young man, probably maybe in his early 20s, maybe even a bit younger than that. He was, um, he was probably fitter than Peter. And he runs like there is no tomorrow. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he is a, one of the disciples who just... Jesus was everything to him. At the foot of the cross, as Jesus was, was hanging there about to die, it was to John that he said, My mother, take her into your home. Treat her as your mother. John cannot believe the story that the tomb is empty and that, and that the body is gone. He arrives and he sees the wrappings and he's... I wonder if he was too afraid to go in. Too afraid to see what was, what was in there. Was the body lying just out of sight? 
could he cope with that again? Peter arrives, true to character. I love old Peter. He is the kind of person that would always speak his, his mouth off and then have to apologize afterwards. He, he just is impetuous. He arrives, he probably gives John this look saying, you outran me, and he goes straight into the tomb. He sees what John saw. He sees the, the linen there, but he also sees the, the head cloth lying folded neatly. This, this was a face cloth. They would tie it under the chin and over the head so that your mouth would stay closed uh, while you lay in your burial tomb. And it's a strange scene that he finds there. Everything is where it should be. Everything is there. Except for the body. When Jesus resuscitated his friend Lazarus from the dead, Jesus arrived and he cried and he wept and he called Lazarus out. He'd been dead for for several days. He was stinky as. Lazarus came out wrapped in his clothes. I think even with the face cloth holding his mouth shut. And Lazarus had to be helped out of his linen burial garments by others. Jesus has no such issues. Do you ever wonder about Jesus' clothing? Prior to his, his resurrection, he, he wore normal clothing. The soldiers gambled for it and they took it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that when he appeared to Mary and the disciples, he wore clothing. I have no idea where he got it. But I've also got this idea that it is not, it is not the same as any garment from this world. It's resurrection clothing. You see, Jesus resurrected is the same and yet different. He is no longer limited by this creation. When he was raised from the dead, the linen garments that wrapped him, that Lazarus had to be helped out of, it's almost as if he just came out of them. John Stott, the great theologian, says that the scene is like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. And you see, Jesus was totally there. But in his resurrection body, even his resurrection clothes, you could feel him, you could eat with him, you could see him, and he could walk through walls. The resurrected Jesus is identifiably the same Jesus who died, and yet there is a difference about him that no longer the constraints of this world operate on this risen Son of God. 
John spends some time, though, discussing and explaining for us these grave clothes. It, I think it made a, a great impression on his mind as he, he walked in after Peter and looked at it. Because, you see, I, I want to say that what John saw that morning sparked within him the tiniest, maybe, flicker of trust. N.T. Wright imagines what the emotions might have been like for, for John as he stood there. He says that it was a different sensation, a bit like a sunrise, a bit like the sound of rain at the end of a long drought, a bit like faith. John had trusted before, but, but this was different. He trusted that Jesus was God come in flesh. He trusted that Jesus was the Savior, but now, even if he couldn't explain it, he trusted and believed that this world had turned a corner, that Jesus was alive again, that, that his body was raised, not stolen. Something about the sight of those clothes and, 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 and how they were laid out, John John knew that this wasn't just someone undressing. This was a totally new way. This was a totally new thing. This was something unlike anything else that this world had ever seen before. John tells us here in verse 9 that, that at this stage they didn't understand all of the scriptures relating to Jesus' resurrection. John realized that Jesus had risen. He, he believed this, but it was, it was the spark of belief. And I wonder if he even really knew how to respond to that. Because, and, and I find this telling, we see he believed and then he went home. I wonder if he, if he was standing there going, wow, something's different here. What do I do now? Or I wonder even if he, if he said, wow, can it be that he is alive? I believe that he is alive can it be? And he went home. John tells us that belief sparked in his heart that day. When it sparked for Peter, we're not 100% sure, but we do know that one person that day certainly had not yet experienced the spark of hope and belief. Mary still had her one fixed idea in her mind. If the tomb is open and the body is gone, the body is being stolen. She is just overcome with grief. And her response makes sense, doesn't it? To many people, they look at John and go, okay, John, you believe because you see some grave clothes. Mary says, this is impossible, and she cannot be consoled. She cries her eyes out, and she bends down to look into the tomb. I don't know, perhaps, you know, when, when you just can't believe something is true, you, you have another look. Maybe, maybe they were wrong. Maybe the body's just in a corner. Maybe they didn't look properly. And instead of seeing a body, she sees two angels. One at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus' body had been. 
Now, angels are messengers from God. They are not the, the, the most beautiful angelic cherubs or beautiful ladies or little babies for some reason who are all, ooh. No, angels are scary. Most often when people encounter an angel, their response is to fall to the ground and say, please don't kill me. And usually the angel's first word is along the lines of, relax, I'm here with a message from God, it's okay. Mary, however, is so overwhelmed with grief that even the sight of two majestic angels, other natural beings, not from our world and domain, she is so overwhelmed with grief that she looks at them and they say to her, Woman, why are you crying? Their very presence hints at the fact that this is not just a scene of crime, that this is a place where, where God's power has been at work. I don't know, perhaps she thinks, she's imagining them. Perhaps she's just not thinking. They ask her why she's crying. She explains to them and she says to them, they've taken away my Lord. They've taken away my master. I don't know where they've put him. And then she turns away. Two mighty messengers from God. And she doesn't ask, have you got something to say to me? She just says, I'm inconsolable. And turns away. It reminds me a little bit of what we saw in a previous sermon with Pilate on Friday. As Jesus was talking to him about his kingdom and Jesus was saying, I'm here to testify to the truth and anyone who listens to the truth listens to me. And Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And turned away and left the room. Pilate is the same as Mary. The world is makes a certain kind of sense. And when the world makes sense, you go with what seems to work. Mary doesn't understand how, how anything an angel could say could make it better. Pilate didn't understand how any idea of truth could even operate in the world. Turning, Mary sees, it seems, a stranger. And he asks her exactly what the angels asked her. Woman, why are you crying? And then he adds more personally, who are you looking for? And if you think about it, There's probably one question that is a weird question to ask in a graveyard. Why are you crying? Well, I, I just like to come to the graveyard to cry. You go to a graveyard, if you see someone crying, you know they're crying because they're mourning the loss of someone. God sends two angels to say, Mary, why are you crying? And then Jesus himself, although she doesn't recognize him, turns up and says, 
Mary, why are you crying? Woman, why are you crying? You see, like the angels, this person that Mary encounters knows that her tears are not appropriate for this circumstance and this situation. Knows that the who she is searching for is not dead, but very much alive. Mary knows that her tears are most appropriate. Her master's body was either stolen or moved, perhaps even by this man. She begs, she says, if you've taken the body, tell me, I'll go fetch it. If you read through the book of John, John loves irony. Because it's quite ironic that Mary has this the sneaking suspicion that perhaps this man has moved the body. And actually, yes, Jesus was responsible for the body being moved. What Mary needed to break through the fog of her grief was a, a ray of light. And Jesus speaks one word as a lighthouse through her grief to open her eyes to what's actually happening. And he calls her by her name, not the Greek version in the text, but actually Miriam. Jesus said that the good shepherd calls his sheep by name and they recognize his voice. And all of Mary's ideas of what is and what isn't possible are blown away by reality standing in front of her. She runs to Jesus and she tries to hold on to him as tightly as she can. Perhaps afraid that if she lets go, this unexpected reality will once again disappear. And Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. I haven't yet returned to my Father. God's rescue plan for this world has, has all but finished. All that is left is for the Son to ascend to the Father, to take up the glory which He laid down when He humbled Himself, to become like us and to die for us. And He says to her, don't hold on to me, Mary. This new resurrection reality This reality where I am alive, where, where I'm not constrained anymore by this world, means that Jesus would be with her and with us in a whole new way. And I think Jesus is also trying to say to her, Mary, don't try and hold me back. Don't try and keep living as we always did live because the world has turned. There is now a reality at work where what counts most is knowing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word created everything, and everything that was created was created by Him. And now in the resurrection, we see the start of a new reality. 
One day Jesus will come back and will remake and make everything new, but already in Christ we see something of that. He is the source of all that will be remade. He is the the forerunner of all those who trust Him. And what matters most now in this age is knowing the Prince of the next, the King of the next. And it's interesting that the first eyewitness of Jesus, of, of this new reality, is someone whom society would have counted as a useless witness. But she becomes useful because she has experienced the new reality. You know, we met John who stood there and had a spark of belief. John believed because of circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is incredible stuff. You get enough circumstantial evidence and you can make a pretty strong case. Mary had the same circumstantial evidence, but she believed because of what she saw and what she experienced. And she was given the job of telling others that Jesus was going to God, that, that he wasn't dead. But already, even in Jesus' message to his disciples, we see that everything has changed. What does he say to her? He says, he says in chapter 20, verse 17, Go to find my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do you know what I find interesting there? Jesus doesn't send a message to his disciples. Isn't that strange? He doesn't send a message to his disciples. He sends a message to his brothers. Now they are brothers. Since the resurrection, something has changed in their relationship to God. Throughout John, Jesus speaks about my Father, our Father. But now he he speaks and says, I'm going to my Father and your Father. I'm going to my God and your God. He makes this as clear as he can. He says, you are now members of God's family. You are my adoptive brothers. John wants us to see that belief in Jesus' resurrection isn't just reasonable, it's essential. Without the resurrection, the right response to what happened to this Jewish teacher 2,000 odd years ago is the response of Mary. Without the resurrection, it is right and proper for us to grieve and mourn and refuse to be comforted. In a sense, you and I today are a bit like John as he stood there in the empty grave, in the empty tomb. Like him, we can, on the evidence available to us, believe that Jesus is alive. But we're also in a different position to John. Because as well as the evidence of the unexplainably empty tomb, we also have the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus. Those who experienced a new reality. John and Peter experienced it at a distance with the clothes unexplainably there. Mary touched him. 
We'll see next week, the other disciples touched him. They end up eating with him. <clears throat> Hundreds of people experience him. We're also in a better position than John because we have the benefit of having had handed down to us what John and Mary and the others still hadn't grasped. How the scriptures over thousands of years had all pointed to the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, and I call you that under advisement of chapter 20, verse 17. Today we do not just grieve the loss of a teacher. We do not grieve the loss of one we might have called Lord. Today we remember the one who is alive. The one who invites us into the new reality that began with his death and his resurrection and that will find fulfillment in his return. Today we remember the one who offers those of us who trust in him a new status. No longer followers, no longer disciples, but brothers and sisters. Today we remember him. The story of the resurrection is the story of the future begun. And today as we finish our service, just before we go and have some, some morning tea, we're going to sing a song that says that we do not live only in today, but we live for the day when Jesus comes. May the reality of that day be true to us today. Let's stand, let's sing together.